what matters most in learning. The challenge, the thrill, the benefits, interacting with other people, or something else entirely. What is the connection between leading and learning? Does change drive learning, or does learning drive change? What's more important, teaching or learning? Is everyone a leader, a learner, a teacher? Want answers? Listen in as we address these intriguing issues through commentary and with guests who share their thinking and tell us their stories. Lead. Learn. Change. For the second time, today's episode of Lead, Learn, Change is provided by Akul Munjal and Vamsi Reddy, co-hosts of the Borborygmi podcast. Listen in as these two future physicians ask some very insightful questions. Questions that sometimes highlight the universal nature of good teaching and learning practices, whether the setting is in elementary school or medical school. Let's get started. Welcome to Borborygmi, Food for Thought. My name is Vamsi Reddy, and I'm here with my co-host, Akul Munjal. We're excited for you to join us as we take a deep dive into the contemporary topics of medicine, philosophy, psychology, ethics, and so much more. This is Akul Munjal. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are medical students and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast reflect any organization or institution. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. This is part two of our multi-part series with Mr. David Reynolds. Thanks for joining us again, sir. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. The first thing we'd just like to ask is, what characteristics do you think make a good teacher? Well, I believe that you guys are just waiting to see what I say because you already know the answer. Uh, I think that there's going to be some universal responses to this one. And I can confirm that by thinking about an event that our organization sponsors, the Professional Association of Georgia Educators has been a very long-term sponsor of the STAR Awards for the STAR student and STAR teacher at each school, each district, and uh, throughout the state. And when you hear the finalists for the STAR Student Award speak each year about their teacher, the message is extremely consistent and it's always that their teacher really knows them and likes them. They actually talk about, I love my teacher. They say things like that. These are high school seniors every single year and they know about their teacher's interests and they always talk about the teacher going out of the way to help them. So without exception, when I ask my podcast guests about their most memorable teachers, I hear the exact same message. And these are people who sometimes are remembering teachers from 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I interviewed my parents recently, so they were remembering teachers from almost 80 years ago when my dad mentioned his first grade teacher. So the greatest teachers, I think, really know their students and not just with regard to academic strengths, but they're aware of their interests. They know their students as people. Also, these teachers are approachable and accessible, and they never belittle anybody uh, in front of anyone or even individually, and they are really 
a champion for the underdog. I mentioned in part one that they really want their students to succeed, and I believe that. And great teachers structure their classroom or their lab around learning and success, not just memorization practices or really rigid rules. They laugh with their students. They're humble. They're consistent. They're firm and they're fair. And they can communicate content and concepts in more than one way. And they're willing to provide you with multiple opportunities to get it and demonstrate what you know. I have a educator colleague friend who, when he was in the classroom, gave his students the grade of A, B, or not yet. And he would simply hang on to that opportunity for them to complete the work as long as, you know, the bureaucratic administrative rules would allow him to do so until they were submitting their best work and doing their absolute best. He really tried to avoid any students falling into the, the failing grade part of a school and just kept saying, not yet, not yet, and give you another opportunity to, to get it right. So I think those are the characteristics of the best teachers. I think we, we can both agree to that just because of the teachers we've had in our lives and how engaging the great teachers have been. So one thing you mentioned was the Star Student Award, Star Teacher Award. And I actually was fortunate and very lucky to receive that, um, become be a star student when I was in high school. But for a lot of our listeners, they don't know what the Star Teacher, Star Program is. Could you detail a little bit of what that is? The Star Program recognizes the student at a high school with the highest SAT score. And then those students are pooled together in districts that have more than one high school, and there is a star student for that particular school district. And then districts are clustered by regions around the state, and there are regional winners of star, students with the highest SAT scores, and they also submit some information uh, that talks about them as a student. And part of the process is they nominate or identify their star teacher. And their star teacher can be any teacher they have ever had. It doesn't have to be someone from that year. So multiple times at the banquet, for example, at the award ceremony, we will see students bring with them because the teacher attends teachers from middle school, or a coach that maybe never even taught them in class, but really impacted their life. And sometimes it's someone from elementary school. Occasionally it's even been that own student's parent. And sometimes what's really amazing is you see the same teachers showing up year after year after year. I remember one year that whoever the star teacher was, was there for their fourth or fifth time. So the students from that school always ended up gravitating towards this particular person because they were such an outstanding teacher. So that award can be given multiple times. Jackson was a, a star student as well. And he, of all the memories from high school that I think he values highest being the star student and being able to identify his star teacher was, was one of those. I really believe that. So it's just an opportunity for us as an organization to say, look, there are great things happening in schools. There are great teachers out there. There are amazing students. The teachers love the kids. The kids love the teachers. This is an opportunity to celebrate that and highlight that for people. And the interviews that we have at the state 
award ceremony are absolutely wonderful to listen to. They're sometimes hilarious, always insightful, and you always leave thinking, wow, look at the, the hope I have now for the future. If you spend too much time in front of the news, you will get so depressed. But if you go to an event like this and you say, wait a minute, it's not all gloom and doom. There are thousands of students out here who are going to make the biggest impact. And then there are also thousands of teachers who are going to continue to work with the next wave of students who are going to do exactly the same thing. It's one of the greatest examples of the perpetuation of possibility that exists anywhere. And I think it's a fantastic program. So that's a really interesting tie into one of the things that we talked about last week, which was standardized tests. So um, I'm just curious about, I guess, this has kind of already been answered to a degree. Uh, Vamsi was a star student and he's doing pretty well. And Jackson was also a star student and he's also doing pretty well. So we talked about how standardized tests aren't necessarily the most predictive thing. So how have you seen people that have won the star student award? How have they, I guess, done in the future? We don't have comprehensive tracking data on that, but I did look through just by chance in the past couple of weeks, some older issues of our organization's publication, the page one magazine. And there was a column in there, a feature a few times that was, uh, it wasn't titled, where are they now? Maybe it was, but something along those lines. And it did highlight some former recipients of star and they were giving their testimonial, so to speak, about the value of that experience and how they still remembered it, remembered it to this day. And most of these people were successful business people. And so there has been an effort to follow up on some of those people. And the ones that we have followed up on are being very successful. I mean, they're making a difference in their communities and they still look back on that fondly. But I cannot sit here and say we have data on you know 3000 star students and you know they're they're all nobel laureates so uh, but whatever they're doing we're quite confident they're, they're doing a great job uh, they're they were so articulate and so focused not driven in a type a personality sort of way but just focused on making a difference there's a recent issue of our page 1 magazine now that you bring that up i believe it's february march of this year, but I'm not sure. And it highlights young students, even middle school, who are really focused on making a difference for another group of people uh, with severe challenges that they face, solving real problems. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I can include a link uh, in the show notes for us later if you'd like me to. It's, it's really another example of the great things that are happening in schools with students and with quality teachers. And the star teacher program is just one of those instances where we get to highlight that. It's a really great thing to be able to do. And it's completely fascinating to see how engaging and how meaningful this star program has been for students. And now speaking about uh, turning from students to the actual educators, Based on your experience, is there any advice that you would have for educators in any setting to engage their students? I'm glad you used the word engage because that is the key. Engagement is the foundational component of, of learning. 
And so broadly as a sweeping broad brush kind of advice, I would say that it's really this one thing that as an educator, you should make all of your decisions through one filter. And the filter is to what extent will doing X fill in the blank to what extent will this decision increase the likelihood of student learning and success. So that might be, we're looking at identifying instructional materials or resources that we need to have our students have access to, or it might be, we're going to look at a budget and decide where we're going to place dollars that will benefit students in the support of learning. Or if you think back to elementary school, we're going on a field trip or we're going on a study trip somewhere. Really look at that and say, if we do this, yes, it should be enjoyable, but the aim of school is not to provide an enjoyable experience for everyone, is to prepare them for whatever's next. So while you're doing this in a way that appeals to students and their interests, regardless of lay age and level of sophistication, you still have to ask, if we go to this place or if we bring in this speaker or if we provide access to these resources or if we structure this project in this way, what's the likelihood that doing that is going to increase student engagement, student learning, and student progress? If you do that, you can't go wrong. And so more specifically, because that's broad, just ask that question for everything that you do. But more specifically, teachers need to design experiences that appeal to a variety of student interests. You can't do that if you don't know the students, which we talked about earlier as a quality or characteristic of a great teacher. So some students thrive on choice and some thrive, you know, I want to be able to read this book, not that book. I want to be, I don't want to do a book report. I'd rather do a skit. I don't want to do either one of those things. I would rather do some, I'd rather go interview, you know, somebody next door and, and turn in this, this CD or make a PowerPoint or whatever, but providing some choice for how you demonstrate what you know or what you learn. And some thrive on novelty and variety and they drift off. If every single day, it's exactly the same. They want to have something different go on. Others really thrive on affiliation, interacting with other people. And that doesn't mean count off by fours and all the ones work together, we're doing quote unquote group work. Now we're affiliating and we're, we're speaking to that student's need to have a meaningful interaction with others. That might not be meaningful interaction. I'm sure I could flip this around and ask the two of you about some group work in medical school and you might have less than wonderful experiences to share in addition to some good ones, but I'm sure there's some there that were not so great and that didn't really feel like affiliation. It just felt like a, a compliance piece or affirmation. Some people really want their work to be acknowledged, but it has to be for people that matter to them. So if you put my work out in the hallway, that may be great for somebody next to me, but I may really want to take that home and show it to my parents. But if all I ever do is put it on the wall and then it's torn down and then the next artwork is put up or the next report, and it never goes home. That's not appealing to my affirmation need that's appealing to somebody else who wants some other students to see it in the hallway. So you have to know your students, know what appeals to them and over time embed those qualities of work into the experience so that everybody is engaged as often as possible. It is not realistic to say that every student should be engaged all the time. That is not real life. That's not how it works. 
but no student should move through an entire semester or hopefully even a project or a giant unit or a year and not be engaged. That would be, that would be problematic. And as far as all the characteristics of work that appeal to learners, the one that matters most, I believe, is probably it's got to be authentic. It has to have some value. You don't want to do things that have no value. If it has, there's no benefit to it and you see no use for it, you might do it out of compliance because you don't want to get in trouble or you want to get a good grade, but you aren't really engaged in it. Those are two different, those are different things. So it has to be for the service of learning. It needs to be authentic. And then everybody, every decision made in a school has to be for the benefit of students, not for the convenience of adults or at the higher level where the students are adults like medical school, not for the benefit of an administrative structure or a bureaucracy or to perpetuate a process that simply repeats itself historically every year because that's the way we've always done it. So a key to all of this is to talk with the people that are the learners in the situation. That might be peers or it might be your students, but you have to talk with them and also you have to listen to them and you've got to be willing to shift. As a teacher, I may think that I have created something that's just outstanding. I did that once uh, as an administrator. I pulled together a single page document that coalesced multiple frameworks on a single sheet of paper. I was so proud of myself. I thought, wow, this is, this is fantastic. Any, anybody who uses anything on this paper here, whether it's column A, column B, or column C, or however it was set up, they are going to think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Their problems are solved. And so I shared it with a colleague of mine, and he sent it back, and he said, well, David, I think it's great if you're the customer. In other words, yeah, if this is for you, then it's really good. But if it's not for somebody else, then it's not necessarily great for them. So I have to think that just because I like this unit or I thought that this is the greatest lecture I've ever given or that students five years ago really enjoyed that trip to fill in the blank, that might not be the right thing now. It goes back to that original question. What's the likelihood that doing this is going to increase student learning, student engagement, and student progress? And I can't know about your level of engagement if I don't ask. If I look at the two of you now, since we're on the Zoom call and we can see each other, and I see you looking down and writing notes, I might think, wow, I just said something really profound, and they're writing this down because they don't want to miss that quote. They're going to go back to it, and it's going to be all over social media. You might be writing your grocery list because you just thought of something you need to get. I have no idea, but it looks like you're engaged, you know, so just nodding your head. You might have your Bluetooth in, and and be talking to somebody else. And I think you're just into, it, or you could be, you know, moving to music. If you don't talk to your students or the people learning, you really don't know for sure. I have a, another colleague, the lady who's featured in the first episode of lead, learn, change. And she had this great unit uh, with in third or fourth graders that she was working with. And it was about newspapers and students created a newspaper and got to put the stories in it and all that sort of thing. And because it had choice in there and working with each other, and they seemed excited about it. She thought it was great. When she asked them about it when they were done, they really didn't like it. I mean, like hardly anybody liked it. And she thought it was fantastic. And so she had to step back and say, wait a minute. Last year's group liked it. This year's group didn't. I thought it was fun, but I never really thought about the learners. I had another idea. Ooh, I could do this. I could do that. I could do this. Not, 
is this going to move the students toward learning? And so I think those are the key questions that goes back to that same filter every single time. You really do have to embed opportunities with interaction with significant others and the community of learners really matters. You're trying to solve problems. You're trying to make sure that students have access to resources and that it's an academically and, and physically and socially, emotionally safe environment in which to do it. Those things combined, constantly running through the filter of how's this going to help students? That's, that's what makes engagement happen. How do you respond to criticisms of education that say that education doesn't prepare students for the next step of life, like taxes and personal finance? Some of the response might be tied to the fact that there's so much pressure placed on schools and educators to have a good test score that the emphasis of content focus ends up falling in those areas that aren't going to be able to be tested like your ability to actually develop a budget to live on or a way to make decisions about your overall health, which is very different than can you add these numbers together, which can be tested very easily, or can you identify which of the following sets of foods are the most healthy that can be tested very easily. Those are two very different things. So part of it is there is an overemphasis on generating a score that a school or an educator is going to be, or a student is going to be judged by to indicate the quality of their experience. The other thing is you need to push back on that sometimes and ask a question about positive experiences at the particular school in question, because people do want to paint with a broad brush and they may say, this thing is just full of problems. I can't do this particular work. I had a colleague that brought a spreadsheet to me one time and said, this, this does not work. So I asked what doesn't work and well, it's just everything. Well, show me something specifically. And it turned out it was predictive text being populated in the cell on the Excel spreadsheet that kept filling in somebody's name when they hit that second letter. And they thought, that it wouldn't allow them to type the rest of the name. They just stopped. It was something that simple. And then when I pushed further after we resolved that problem, there wasn't another problem at all. So sometimes it's just a global sweeping criticism without a lot of foundation. So I would ask for specifics. The other thing I would do is to identify places. If I, if I were asked that question, I can easily point to many places, many schools, many classes where those things are taught. And it goes back to that authenticity design quality that we mentioned earlier. So as an educator, being prepared to not defend or convince, but just explain and highlight the places where those skills are indeed taught. And they may not, the students may be able to do that, but that's not something that the general public at large might know, not to be dismissive of anybody who doesn't have their foot in the schoolhouse door every day. But if you don't ask questions, like if you don't ask the learner, did you enjoy that? If you don't really ask the educator for examples of when they are embedding authentic experiences into the classroom so that students have access to those sorts of experiences, then you really don't know. And that's really uninformed. So you can conflate the wrong metrics with 
what's actually happening. And I think the way to address that is through specific questions and specific examples. You really have to talk about real things, not sweeping broad brush judgments. That's very true. And we've talked a lot about educators and how to be a good educator, how to engage their students. Uh, but is there ever such thing as a poor learner or is there just an environment in which the learner, it isn't conducive to the learner's learning? We would all agree, I believe, that we all learn. So taking out of the equation someone who is challenged with a, a physiological issue that prevents them from learning in a, in a normal way, uh, in, a, in a healthy way, take that out of the equation, where we all learn. And even people with significant medical or physiological challenges also learn. People might not learn what it is that we are expecting them to learn sometimes or at the same pace or in the same way or uh, may not be able to necessarily articulate it. And we need to provide them with opportunities to demonstrate what they know, but we all learn. So I don't think we can say there is a, a poor learner. I think you have to get at what it is that uncovers what that student has learned. There's a great book. It's called, if she only knew me, it's by, Heather Thomas and Jeff Gray. And it's written from the perspective of a student in poverty. It's very short, maybe a thousand words, something like that. And near the end, maybe the final page, is a single set of prose, a list of bulleted items that talks about all the things that this student knows that his teacher doesn't know. It says something like, I, I know a lot more than she thinks I know. And it is about, I know how to find the best bargains on used clothes at which flea market on the weekend. I know how to survive without electricity or running water for two weeks. I know where you can buy the cheapest soft drink and all these other things that this student knows how to do. That's sort of like the question that you posed just a moment ago about not being able to balance a checkbook or some of those sorts of things, create a budget. It's, there are these life skills that, that people have. And so what the student knows is, is really important. So I don't think it's a poor learner thing. I would think that inside the givens of the content that needs to be conveyed to students, uh, the understandings that they have to be, to obtain and what they need to learn, the, the primary enabler of engagement is the learning experience that appeals to the interests and needs of the student and in order to do that, you have to know your student or your patient or your client. It doesn't matter what field you're in. And you can't maximize anyone's learning or their progress with, in the absence of a solid relationship. I, I do not believe that there are poor learners or non-learners. I really do think it, it's a joint responsibility to uncover what it is that appeals to the, the motives of the learner and make that work. Again, we talked in episode one, maybe of this conversation might've been in this, in this second segment about the different physicians that you've worked with in your rotations. And I'm going to assume that what I've just said applies in that sort of situation as well. All right. So a lot of what you said makes a lot of sense. It doesn't seem like there's such thing as a poor learner. I think that 
a lot of people learn best in different situations and maybe people haven't necessarily found the situation that works best for them. But what is an interesting story that you would like to share with us and our listeners from your extensive career that you would be willing to share? Well, there are a lot of anecdotes and I think some of them are interesting, but I think maybe the most valuable response would be to share just a couple of highlights, almost chronologically, and summarize what those experiences combined have taught me. And so let me move through about 40 years of, of content or memory swiftly. I did already tell you that after my first year, I quit teaching. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, story from, from my career. And that was a pretty significant change. And when I went back, after a few years after I went back to the classroom, I had been teaching eighth graders and ninth graders, high school freshmen. And then the configuration of the grade levels and the schools changed where I was working. And I lost my high school freshmen and I picked up sixth graders. And that was quite a shock uh, to me because there's a huge difference between people who are getting their learner's licenses, learner's permits to drive, and someone who just left elementary school a few weeks earlier. So that was quite a shock. Uh, also, after about five or six years of teaching, I was in that sixth, seventh, eighth grade environment. The entire, all the subject matter that I had been trained for changed in an, in a moment, I mean, a truck literally backed up to the industrial arts lab. The garage door was raised. Giant 220-volt electrical cords were cut. And all of the machines and the equipment were gone. They were moved out in a day. And I just had this empty hull of a, of a space. And we reconfigured that over the, the next summer, over that summer. And the curriculum changed from industrial arts to explorations in technology. So everything I had trained for and had taught for a couple of years was over in a moment. And so that was pretty significant. And then I learned from students in the course of this, I learned how to do Microsoft PowerPoint from two sixth graders when I was an assistant principal. They showed me how to do it. I had a presentation I had to make for the school. I had no clue. They taught me and that stuck with me and obviously transferred to other experiences and opportunities later. Also had a friend, the same gentleman, Philip Brown, who used to grade A, B, and not yet, who became the principal of a college and career academy. And I went to visit him one day and couldn't find him in his office. He had, in fact, given up his office in the front of the school and allowed it to be used for parent and student groups and found this little tiny windowless closet in the center of the school for his office. And it was such a abysmal environment that he found that he did not want to stay there at all, which kept him out and about in the school all the time. But in addition to that little insight he had, he also was a teaching principal. So he had a full-time class that he taught while he was a principal. And I found him outside in the parking lot with his students teaching. And I thought that was extremely uh, impressive. And then as my, as a, on the first day or two of my assistant principal job, my first assistant principal job, we were moving equipment and books and materials out of the gymnasium that had been stored for renovation because of renovation all summer back into the building. And I took the school's photocopier and knocked it off of its 
table and crashed it to the ground and broke it the day before school started. I'm a new AP. Nobody knows me. I destroyed the photocopier that the teachers wanted to use. And that just did not win me a whole lot of friends. And then uh, I did a lot of other things. I developed a budget, which I hadn't done before. I chaired a disciplinary tribunal, which was not enjoyable, but a necessary skill. And then when I was a first year principal, I followed a principal who had been the school's only principal for 25 years. So there was a lot of tradition and a lot of familiarity. And then you step into that role. And that was a huge learning experience. And one of those experiences was there were seven students in that school who had life-threatening dairy or peanut allergies. And a whole protocol had to be developed to make sure that we avoided any major catastrophe or harm to a student that year. And then I've worked with teachers around the state for the last 10 or 15 years. And I've even had a chance to work and interact with some teachers in Dubai a couple of times. And that was very, very interesting. So there's many stories like that. And I think that my experience is unique to me. And, but the specifics and the specifics are mine, but the overarching concepts are familiar to all educators. And I think those include, Change is inevitable. The unexpected should be expected. You can learn a whole lot from each other, including your students. You have to be flexible, adapt, think on your feet, and you have to keep student benefit as the focus of your work. And the overwhelming supermajority of educators really are dedicated individuals who commit their careers to helping others as part of their life's work. That, that's what I've taken away from all those events because when I destroyed the copier, people were only disappointed for a little while. They weren't really mean to me for the rest of my time at that school. So they got over it. So I do see this resilience of the human spirit and willingness to be forgiving and move ahead. And I think that's what teachers do. They, they move ahead. Wherever you are, that's where you are. And we're going to move to the next step. You no, know, it sounds like you've had such a fascinating career. And as someone who has been a lifelong educator, you've also been a lifelong learner. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Any pearls of wisdom? Every time I have an opportunity to have an open mic like this, I always say take 5, 10, 15 minutes today to identify somebody who has taught you something in the past. It might be a teacher at school. It might be a family member or someone else. But if someone's taught you something and it has really benefited you or you really appreciated it and maybe you never said thanks or even if you did, say it again, take time to find somebody, make a phone call, send an email, send a text message, do something, post it on social media if you really want to give them a shout out and, and they're willing to uh, have their, their name out there that way. Thank somebody for what they've done for you. Thank a teacher. That's what I would leave people with. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Reynolds, and thank you to all of our listeners. Before we go, uh, would you just like to give a plug to your own podcast and share with the listeners what it's about? Sure. Thanks. And I, again, I appreciate being here with you guys today. I do invite the audience to listen to Lead, Learn, Change podcast and just scroll through some of those episode descriptions and listen to a segment or two and then leave a rating, post a review, share it with somebody. That's always appreciated. You can find it on any podcast platform. And uh, I've started dabbling in Instagram. So at some point, 
lead.learn.change on Instagram would also be a place that people could find out a little bit about the work or maybe lift some quotes or see some of the guests who are part of the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, thank you both. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today. Find the Lead, Learn, Change podcast on your search engine, iTunes, or other listening app. Leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, and share with others. In the meantime, go lead, go learn, go make a change, go. Go.